To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries, where you can find photos of the Galset Rocket Trio and links to our other free podcasts, The Griffith Park Murder Mystery and Alien LA. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Los Angeles Mysteries radio program. On our second episode of The Rocketeer and the Magician, we continue the tragic story of Jack Parsons, whose mysterious and untimely death might have been the result of a tragic accident, a suicide, homicide, or even a government conspiracy. Last time, we covered Jack's early life, his early fondness and aptitude for science fiction, rocket ships, and summoning the devil. On today's episode, after asking Satan for a rocket in his teens, and bringing rocket science to Los Angeles in his 20s, Jack Parsons joins a sex magic cult. That's magic with a C-K. Why the K? Simply put, that's how you spell it when you believe you aren't performing illusions, but when you are practicing occult rituals and actually changing the world around you. No tricks. In constant search of community and acceptance, Jack fosters a close relationship with wickedest man in the world, Alistair Crowley, and finds himself climbing the ranks of his esoteric order. But first, we begin in LA's city center with the story of how Jack is called to testify in a case of attempted murder. And now, Act Two, The Magician. At 648 South Broadway, downtown, on the top level of Clifton's cafeteria, the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society is listening intently as Jack wraps up a presentation on the development and potential of rocket engines and space travel. Carrying his love for sci-fi into adulthood, Parsons is grateful to sound off to a group of space-minded dreamers. The audience is full of bright-eyed, soon-to-be-big sci-fi authors, including Robert Heinlein, Forrest Ackerman, and a youthful Ray Bradbury. Bradbury would later recall the night and timidly approaching the vibrant speaker who enchanted him. A young man, some six or seven years older than myself, was there talking about rockets and the future. He was wonderful. Uh, My impression of him was like a young Howard Hughes. I chatted with him after, but was afraid of him because I was an uneducated non-student, a newsboy. During the Depression, Clifton's cafeteria serves as a refuge not just for literary outcasts, but for the average down-and-out Angelino as well. Owner Clifford Clifton is a well-known advocate of the lower and working class. He is running the cafeteria on a pay-what-you-can basis. He will also provide free food to any person or family who cannot afford a meal. Clinton's only troubles come after taking on local organized corruption. Well, there goes the old school bell, folks, and it's time to open the political school of the air again. First, let's see what the office of district attorney means. Tired of a city filled with crooked politicians and a bought police force. The district attorney can say yes or no. Especially no. 
the restaurant owner, hosts a radio show, outing officers and government figures who are known to be on the take. Deputy George Stallman wanted to prosecute, but Fitz demanded that the case against the millionaire be dismissed. The same was true in dismissals in the Julian case. What shall it profit the poor people of Los Angeles if they fill all their jails with poor people? If the big racketeers, the big gamblers, the big syndicate lawyers, the men who steal millions, go free. But within weeks, an explosion occurs at Clinton's home at the corner of Western and Los Feliz. Residing on the opposite end of the house from where the blast occurred, his wife and daughter are unharmed, and Clifford survives, but is confined to a wheelchair. Adding to the chaos, the family's hired investigator, Harry Raymond, narrowly survives his car being bombed a short time later. The trial for the bombings becomes a citywide sensation when one of the prime suspects is announced to be the head of police intelligence, Captain Kynette. And by some cosmic coincidence, the expert witness called by the prosecution to testify against him is none other than Jack Parsons. He speaks elegantly to the jury about the dynamite discovered at the crime scene. By the end of the trial, the defendants are each found guilty. Captain Kynette is put away for over a decade, and college dropout Jack is on the record as an explosives expert. This is the story of how Jack Parsons exploded. A self-taught chemist, rocket innovator, and co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Labs, who finds his nights dedicated to strange body meetings and black magic. His odd life and mysterious death are investigated over the course of the next five episodes. Today, Jack begins his journey into the esoteric community while continuing his groundbreaking work in jet propulsion. We explore the peculiar and sordid backstory of Aleister Crowley, famed occultist and all-around bad boy, who becomes a guiding figure in Jack's life. This is Occult LA. Jack stands with his wife, at the base of a strange altar in a small Hollywood attic. Accessible only by a trapdoor in the floor, the dim, dingy room holds at one end a few rows of wooden pews sitting opposite an elaborate dais of three steps. Above it is the super altar, at whose top is the stela of revealing. Below the stela is a place for the book of the law. All this is enclosed within a great veil. Upstage center, flanked by two six-foot obelisks, one black, one white, two dozen lit candles loom over the congregation. Behind them, an upright black sarcophagus. Though Jack has attended a few times before, this is Helen's first experience with the Gnostic Mass. Located in a large wooden Winona Avenue house just north of Hollywood Boulevard, the Agape Lodge is the California sect of the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, 
The other members of the church are artists, actors, free spirits, and curious locals. Incense billows from a pot near their feet and emanates across the black and white checked altar, rising from the attic floor almost like an ethereal 3D chessboard. As if on cue, the first chess piece arrives. A man in his late 50s, head wrapped in a pale turban, dressed in white and yellow robes. He bears the Book of the Law. He is the temple's leader, Wilfred Talbot Smith, owner of the house on Winona Avenue. He is our king. Advancing, then bowing before the open shrine, he kisses the Book of the Law three times, placing it open upon the super altar, and turns west. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. I proclaim the law of light, life, love, and liberty in the name of all. Love is the law. Love and will. Two more pieces make their way to the board. The priest takes his position stage right, holding a lance erect. The priestess bears a sword from a red girdle and a Eucharistic paten. She takes her position at the rear center of our chessboard. She is our queen. A large photograph depicting the visage of a bald man with piercing black eyes hangs on the wall exalted over the congregation. We worthily commemorate them worthy that did of old adore thee and manifest thy glory unto men. Lao Tzu and Siddhartha, Rebele, Swineburne and many and holy bard, Christian Rosencrantz, Sir Edward Kelly and Alistair Crowley. If Wilfred Smith is the Lodge's king, Alistair Crowley is its highest prophet. Founder of the Ordo Templi Orientis and their prime philosophy, Thelema, Crowley had belonged to secret societies and published extensively on esotericism for decades. After the First World War, he and his European sect were evicted by Mussolini for holding what were deemed to be satanic seances at his home in Cefalu, Sicily. Among other things, they were accused of drinking cat's blood. In his youth, he climbed treacherous mountains where he was known as a ruthless teammate and reckless leader. Once, ignoring the cries for help when his fellow climbers were struck by an avalanche. He worked shortly as a British spy during World War I, and is widely known throughout Europe as the Great Beast 666, or the wickedest man in the world. However, he has developed a crippling heroin addiction and is losing the lust of his youth. Standing among the congregation on Winona Avenue, watching his king, Wilfred Smith, a man who over the past few years has become the primary male figure to the fatherless young Parsons. 
Jack has no way of knowing that the wickedest man in the world will soon begin a direct correspondence with the 30-year-old rocket man. And Jack Whiteside Parsons will step out from the Agape Lodge's congregation to become their new leader. In 1939, the same year Jack first visits the Agape Lodge in Hollywood and attends the Gnostic Mass in its attic, Frank Molina is invited by the Galset team's faculty representative, Theodore von Karman, to travel to D.C. and discuss rocket propulsion with the National Academy of Sciences, or NAS. Since the NAS consults in government projects, their talk is highly secretive. At the meeting, though there is some pushback from a few Air Corps officials, the squad is ultimately granted $10,000, 10 times their previous budget, to build and test rockets for use in jet-assisted takeoff, or JATO. Jack, working as full-time chemist, with Ed, the full-time engineer, would now earn $200 a month, double the income from their day jobs. And even Frank Molina would delay his degree in favor of working with the United States government's first jet propulsion team. We could even expect to be paid for doing our rocket research. And perhaps most important to Frank, if not Jack and Ed as well, is that their rocket research would be used in the furtherance of aviation and not as a means to carry military explosives farther and faster. The squad had always viewed their work as a populist venture, an extraordinary invention for the ordinary citizen, and their politics reflect that. Spurred on by a bombastic Caltech chemistry student, along with the political upheaval in Russia and Great Depression here at home, the Czech-raised Molina had fully embraced the communist movement. Ed Foreman had eschewed any invitation to political meetings, but Jack found himself somewhere in the middle. Not really committed to the belief system, he still joined the red-leaning ACLU and subscribed to the first openly communist paper, People's Daily World. Though a strong advocate of left-wing causes and an undeniable rebel, when pressed to officially join the Communist Party, Jack ultimately refuses the invitation, and his attendance at the clandestine meetings slowly fades. But by the fall of 1939, Poland is invaded by Germany as the rest of the world anxiously watches on. With a Nazi-funded missile program and a Second World War marching its way through Europe, the squad's initial apprehensions toward aiding a war effort had nearly vanished. The ragtag group of anti-authoritarians, newly named Galset Project No. 1, would now race to devise, design, and determine rockets for the fastest-growing industrial complex in the nation, the U.S. military. We felt that socially responsible engineers and scientists at that time had a mission to perform. We decided that we were going to use rocketry to defeat fascists. A letter from Wilfred Smith to the great beast, Alistair Crowley. Frater. I think I have at last a really excellent man, John Parsons. And starting next Tuesday, 
he begins a course of talks with a view to enlarge our scope. He has an excellent mind and a much better intellect than myself. John Parsons is going to be valuable. While Jack becomes thoroughly entangled with the occultists, it'll be useful to spend a few minutes digging into the mysterious Alistair Crowley and the origins of his Thalamic order. So let's jump back to the latter half of the 19th century to a small town outside of Birmingham, England. Born in 1875 to strict English Protestant parents, Crowley first intended to follow in his father's footsteps and become a preacher for the deeply fundamentalist Christian group, the Plymouth Brethren, their core principle being complete subservience to God, demonstrated by abstaining from decadence of any form, bland clothing, moderate portions, absolutely no indulging. Much like Jack Parsons, the young, sheltered Crowley opts to forego playdates and spends much of his grade school days thumbing through classic literature, poetry, and primarily the Bible, resulting in schoolyard bullying. Similarly as well, Alistair loses his father at a young age, and later will unsuccessfully attempt to summon the devil. Crowley's crippling solitary lifestyle leads to a prolonged sickness that doctors say will kill him in less than a year. He is promptly sent to live with an uncle out in the country, where he is encouraged to play outside, hike, climb, and just have fun. Maybe too much fun. Crowley's uncle takes him drinking and pays for prostitutes. And the boy's health fully recovers. Needless to say, this changes Crowley forever. And when he returns to his mother, she notes this change saying he has become the beast from the Book of Revelation. The youth loves this. He blames the Plymouth Brethren for his sickness. That life of pure restriction was oppressive and arbitrary. He fully embraces his new moniker. Alistair soon begins outright dabbling in the occult, poring over ancient and forbidden texts, and finally heads to his first meeting of the Order of the Golden Dawn, a Mason-esque magician's lodge and fraternity in Great Britain. But he never properly gels with the group, first showing up in a fake mustache and disguise, calling himself Russian Count Vladimir Svarev. No one buys it. But nonetheless, he later uses this as a credential to become a British spy. After all, he successfully infiltrated a secret society, right? Then he further infuriates the Golden Dawn by skirting around their rule, preventing low-ranking members from learning high-level spells, by trading magic lessons for free room and board at his apartment. On top of this, the Order is becoming increasingly concerned that Crowley is interested in black magic and fears the result of his gaining power. When the sect refuses to advance his rank, Crowley appeals to the leader of the French chapter and one of the Order's three founders, who provides Alistair with a certificate approving his ascension. 
but this piece of paper does nothing to change the minds of the London Lodge. And in one final act of rebellion, dressed in a Scottish suit with a kilt and a dagger on his belt, a large crucifix on his chest, and a black mask, he sneaks into the temple and changes the locks. He then stands, laughing at the members from the window as they arrive, befuddled. Despite his getup, he's recognized immediately and is promptly expelled from the group. But this is no matter. The great beast already has what he needs. In 1904, Crowley attempts to invoke ancient Egyptian gods in Cairo while honeymooning with a young woman he had just eloped with, Rose Kelly. Rose suddenly becomes entranced. They are waiting for you. The equinox of the gods has come. She claims to have seen gods and to have been taught a spell. Crowley asks her which deity she heard. She declares that it must have been Horus, but Alistair is skeptical of Rose, knowing her to think very little of magic, until she guides him to a museum where she finds a display of the Stela of Revealing, exhibit number 666. Indeed, the carving depicts Horus, standing among two other gods. Knowing Rose to have never seen an image of the god before, Crowley asks her to point out the being from her vision. She correctly identifies bird-headed Horus. Alistair takes Rose and immediately performs the ritual that she relays to him, when he is suddenly struck by the presence of what he calls his guardian angel. Crowley's guardian imparted upon the prophet the single most influential phrase for all those who have since followed him. Do what thou wilt. That shall be the whole of the law. Jack and Helen are officially initiated into the Ordo Templi Orientis in 1941. They pay their dues, attend regularly, and integrate into the congregation. Though it's an odd group of misfits, rife with infighting and backstabbing, Jack is addicted to the familial atmosphere and finds in the lodge leader, Wilfred T. Smith, something he had sought throughout his life, a father figure. The Order's founder, Alistair Crowley, believes a person of wealth and renown will help entrench his organization into society, so Crowley embraces and encourages the parson's attendance, going as far as to begin a personal correspondence with Jack. To anyone outside their inner circle, the mere existence of such a bizarre bunch, headed by a spectral figure known as the wickedest man in the world, leads to wild speculation and outright fear. They were called the Purple Cult when a college dancer and voice student of the Lodge Priestess was found murdered on the L.A. City College campus. Though the temple had nothing to do with it, Jack and the rest of the congregation remain on the radar of the LAPD and the FBI. In reality, however, like any mass, 
The meetings are mostly protracted rituals, recitations, and music serving as a refuge for the misfit toys of Hollywood. And though Crowley takes it all deadly seriously, not every member does. John Carradine attends once, but it may just be research for his upcoming movie, The Black Cat. Actor and gay rights activist Harry Hay is the mass organ player. As a subtle joke, he'll occasionally toss in ditties like Barnacle Bill the Sailor, and yes, we have no bananas. In fact, if not for one glaringly taboo tenet of Crowley's doctrine, the Lodge's behavior may well have been ignored. Practitioners of Thelema are strong proponents of sex magic. They use controlled sex acts as a meditative channel and believe at the moment of release they are able to exert their will onto the chaos of the world, making what they wish so. Followers pay additional fees to Crowley as they climb the 10 degrees of the order. Sex magic is taught at level 9, but Crowley's grip of the Hollywood sect is a bit loose from over 5,000 miles away, and their free-loving mores likely lead to some rule-bending, as orgiastic swinging fills the lodge. Helen is first uncomfortable with the idea, but eventually warms up to it, while Jack is the belle of the ball. <laughs> Ironically, the great beast, Crowley, never liked Los Angeles, visiting briefly only once in his early 40s. Cinema crowd, cocained, crazed, sexual lunatics, and the swarming maggots of near occultists. The opium-addicted sex magician saw no irony in his statement and would continue to prove hypocritical but sincere the rest of his life. Nonetheless, he grows a fondness for Jack and begins devising a plan to utilize the Rocket Man as a magnet for membership. Jack begins hosting meetings at his Pasadena home these meetings are mostly parties where they discuss poetry and politics, but also Thelema and the principles of magic. Jack is unsuccessful in recruiting Frank, Ed, or either of their wives into the group. And indeed, all of the logic-oriented rocketeers deny his invitation, though he does manage to reel in some of his science fiction friends. Additionally, Sarah Northrup, Helen's 16-year-old half-sister, known as Betty, has recently shacked up with Jack and Helen. Betty is finishing up her final years of high school, out from under the oppressive thumb of her father. A man, Jack's wife confides, who abused Helen as a teen. Though Betty didn't get along with her half-sister growing up, in fact, they fought terribly. Helen puts that behind her, and Jack soon talks Betty into joining the lodge. And for a brief moment, they all have a happy family. Jack pens a letter to the temple leader, Wilfred T. Smith. You know, I was an only and lonely child. 
it's a fine thing to inherit such a large and splendid family. I never knew a father. It's nice to have one now. Next time on Occult LA. Can Jack play the good soldier for his new military bosses at Aerojet? Can he hold on to his wife, Helen, and his dear friends, Ed, Frank, and the Suicide Squad, while growing ever closer to Wilfred Smith, Alistair Crowley, and the Order Templi Orientis? And what do you get when you cross a solid with a liquid? Written, directed, and voiced by John E. Marina, with additional voices performed by Michelle Miller. Along with autobiographies, George Pendel's Strange Angel and Sex and Rockets by John Carter were invaluable resources. Music, courtesy of archive.org. Theme song by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries.